Take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing for sake of time, but I am going to read a major portion of this, this chapter. 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 1. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly. Indeed, bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through, the subtly, through his subtly, subtly, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if we receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles, but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself, that ye might be exalted, because I have preached to you the gospel God freely? I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. When I was present with you and wanted... I was chargeable to no man, for that which was lacking to me the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. What I do that I will do, that I may cut off occasion for them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I say again, let no man think me a fool, if otherwise yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. For you suffer fools gladly, seeing yourselves are wise. For you suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are the Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, and laborers more abundant, and stripes above measure, and prisons more frequent, and deaths off. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings, often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils in, by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that, with, that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak? and I am not weak, who is offended, and I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. 
In Damascus, the governor under Aratus, the king, kept the city of the Maskeens with a garrison desirous to apprehend me. Through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hand. I know I said I wasn't going to read the whole thing, but I decided to rather leave out three verses. Anyway, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word today. We thank you for this testimony of the Apostle Paul and his example of ministry. I pray that you'd help us, Father, to glean some truths here today that would encourage us, that would challenge us, would humble us, help us to see um, our purpose, our mission in life that you've given to us. And I pray that you'd help us just be faithful. Pray that for any in our midst who are not truly born again, the Spirit of God would arrest their hearts, bring conviction, and bring repentance. The Father, for those who maybe need encouraged and strengthened and challenged, I pray that the Spirit of God will work in their hearts, draw them to thyself, you know, a closer relationship with you. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, many people seek positions of leadership for purposes that are less than pure. In Matthew 6, Jesus said that we are not to do our alms or our giving to be seen of men. We're not to pray on street corners to be seen of men. You know, many enter politics, they're self-serving. They do it to become wealthy or famous or make a name for themselves. There are many are pulpits that are more concerned about the size of their church than they are the spiritual state of the members of the church. They're concerned that the budget is sufficient to meet all the needs, that they are well-liked, and they are pleasing. You know, Paul spent a year and a half at Corinth establishing the church there, after which others infiltrated the church to promote themselves and tried to discredit Paul. To do this, they attacked his appearance and his rights. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 10, it says this, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So this was simply an attack on his character, not his doctrine. They couldn't find fault with his doctrine. You know, when people can't find fault with your doctrine or with, your, with, with what you believe, they will attack your character, your person, to try and discredit you. So this has nothing to do with Bible doctrine, simply an attack on a person's character to promote themselves of their superiority. And, of course, it resulted in a divided church and reveals the motives of those involved. And so to answer these attacks, Paul did not resort to attacking their character, but appeals to his purpose in ministry, and his purpose was not to win people to himself or gain a following. He was not about building an empire, but to bring people into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, title of the message this morning here, taking from verse 2, presenting you to Christ. Presenting you to Christ. And so as we consider this morning, I want to notice several things. First of all, Paul's genuine 
motives. And I want to notice two things here as we think about this. Uh, two things. First of all, he was zealous to direct them into a relationship with Christ. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The Bible tells us here that Paul said, I'm jealous over you. Now, when we think of the word jealous, we think of ill connotations right away. We understand the word jealous. Jealous means to us, it's a feeling of resentment against someone because of that person, maybe a rivalry, or they are a success, or because of their advantages, so we're jealous of them. We have resentment or ill feelings toward them. But the word jealousy here means zeal, or ardor in embracing, pursuing, or defending anything. So Paul said, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. You know, I have a zeal, and his zeal, or his jealousy was, not that he would win them to himself, that he would espouse them, or the word espouse here has the idea of joining or to give one in marriage to, he wanted to espouse them or bring them into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he wasn't jealous for his own sake, for his own gain. He didn't have that in mind. What he had in mind was that he'd, he'd teach these people the truth of the Word of God, so he'd bring them into relationship with the Son of God. Not to himself. Not to himself. See, his motives were pure. We find this brought out in Romans 10, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Brother, my heart's desired prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So he was earnest about, he had an earnestness about God. You know, they had an earnestness about God, but it was not right. Just like Muslims have a zeal, they have a zeal uh, for their religion, but it is vain, it is empty, it is worthless because of the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul's burden was that these people would have a proper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and be joined in Him. So his purpose was to bring people into a covenant relationship with God. You know, He wasn't seeking friends for a social gathering, even a religious following of which he could be the leader. That wasn't his interest. His ministry was not about him. He didn't consider it his ministry. It was the Lord's ministry. It was all about the Lord Jesus Christ and leaders leading others into a relationship with the Lord. And not just to himself. So he was zealous to direct them into a relationship with Christ. Secondly, his message, his was the message of Christ. Notice in verses 3 and 4, he says, But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent begout Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if we receive another spirit, whom ye have not received, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. So his message, his message, you know, genuine message here was of Christ. You know, he says, you know, we, we not, your mind shouldn't be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The word corrupted means to fall away from. 
And the simplicity, the word simplicity is, is something that sometimes is confused. It doesn't mean that it's easy to understand. It doesn't mean it's easy to believe it. It doesn't mean it's easy to accept it. What it means is it's singular. It is singular. The, the, the simplicity of Christ is it's a single-hearted faith in Christ and in Him alone. It is without self-seeking. See, the gospel is not about self-interest or self-promotion. It is about Christ. It's about Christ. You know, there were those in Paul's day who seemed to follow him around wherever he went, seeking to draw away disciples by adding works, particularly circumcision, to the gospel. And these many, these were Jewish. Obviously, these were Jewish. We even find that stated very clearly here in chapter 11, verse 22, that these were Jewish men who evidently came along or joined the church or came into the church uh, after Paul had left, and and they were adding things to the gospel. And most likely, the main thing that they added was circumcision. Yeah, you know, yeah, you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you also have to be circumcised. I don't know where that leaves you ladies. Because ladies can't be circumcised. You know, some people don't think things through, do they? You know, false teachers usually don't really think through. But see, this is a simplicity. The gospel is a gift of God not of works. It is singular. It is in the person of Christ only. And when you start adding things to that, you make it a duel. You make it... Basically, what you make the gospel then is a negotiation. Well, you know, yeah, but I got to do this, this, and this. Then you're negotiating. The gospel's... The gospel and faith in Christ is not a negotiation. It's Christ that dies. It's Christ that rose from the dead. It's Christ who is the power of God and the salvation. It is faith in Christ alone that saves, not of works. And so when the Bible speaks of the simplicity of Christ, it does not necessarily mean that it's, that it's so easy, but that it is singular, that it is in faith in Christ alone. John 1, 12 and 13, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, in other words, not your inheritance, nor the will of the flesh, not something you can work for, nor the will of man. No man can give it to you. I can't give it to you. It's not of me. I can tell you the message. I can give you the message on how, but you have to receive it for yourself. I can't give it to you. You have to surrender your will. You have to repent and put your faith in Christ. See, it's not of it's not of works. It's all of Him. It's singular. John one twenty nine. Next day, John seeth Jesus coming on him and saith, "Behold, the Lamb of God." There was only one Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus said to John eight twelve, "I am the light of the world." John ten nine, "I am the door." 
Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. Acts 4, 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. You see, simplicity in Christ means there is only one Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, and there is only one way to Christ, and that is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your works are the effect of faith, not the cause of it. And see, Paul's message was a simple or a singular one. It is Christ alone. Not plus circumcision or keeping the law. No, it is Christ alone. There's a lot of people today that add to it well, you gotta have, gotta be, you gotta be baptized too. You know, baptism pictures salvation, a surrender to the Lord, but doesn't save. A lot of people believe that they, you gotta take, take communion, or you gotta do the certain kind of things. No. It is simply, it is singular, it is Christ. Him alone. So we see his genuine motives. Secondly, we see his unconventional manners. Now I know that kind sounds kind of strange, but I want to notice several things here about his unconventional manners. First of all, his foolish jealousy was not, again, to draw to himself. Notice verse 1, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, or my foolishness, and indeed bear with me. Then in verse 5, he says, For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles, but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Now, he was troubled by their sin, he was troubled by the divisions, he was troubled by their immorality and all these things, and so on, etc., etc., which really were not against him. Those things were not against him, but they were against the Lord. So you might ask the question, why should he care? Why would he be so concerned? It did not affect him. It wasn't his problem. He had been faithful in preaching and teaching while he spent the year and a half there. So why was he so burdened for the Corinthians? Why would he fast and pray and write and carry a burden for him, which is, which is what he did? And we see this in chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, where he says, In weariness and painfuls, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things which are without, uh, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So these things were a great burden to him. And he was willing to go to all ends to do whatever is needed to try and help them, even though he had nothing to gain. He did not present himself as a man of learning, though he was. 
In fact, verse 6 says that he was rude in speech. Now, that doesn't mean he was rude in manners, that he was not kind and considerate. It simply means he was unskilled. He was not eloquent. He was not eloquent. In other words, he appeared and spoke like a common man. He did not try to impress people with his education, which he was very educated. Or sway their emotions with great oratory speeches or emotional stories, many of which he experienced. Think about the stories that this man could tell, the experiences that he had. And he could have, he could have shared all these, but he appealed to their hearts. Instead, he appealed to their hearts simply with the word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, he, he says this, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3 through 5, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. So it wasn't a demonstration of great education or, or, or eloquence or great oratory. No. It was in the demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, he simply appealed to their hearts with the word of God. Just the plain truth. Spoken as a man, a common man to a common man. Though he was a man a learn of education uh, and 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 he was also a Roman citizen, which which is a, which is a another level of class, you might say, in that day to have Roman citizenship as a Jew. But but he, we know he was a very learned man. Could speak probably commentators believe at least six languages. He could quote the poets, which he did at Athens, and yet he disappeared. As a common man. See, he wasn't trying to impress anybody with who he was. With his personality. Or his education. I find an illustration of this also in Second Samuel. And <clears throat> chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, you remember David brought up the Ark of the Covenant, bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. He's now king. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 14 and 15, it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. Now, this is the king. And it says he's dancing. The word dance here means that he's, he's, uh, you know, to exalt, to leap, to run. You know, it kind of reminds me of the people jump up and clap and stomp their feet and, and applause at a game or something, you know. That's kind of what he's doing. This is the king. And he's got a linen ephod on. Where's his king's robe? You know what he's doing? He's appearing just like the common man. Just like everyone else. That's cheering and clapping and praising God, you know, and he's just mixing in with the people, just like he's one of them. 
Some people weren't impressed. Verse 20 says, Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servant as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michael, Before the Lord, which chose me before thy father and before all his house, to appoint, appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord and over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will be yet more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. You see, David understood something. That just because he was king didn't mean that he was better than everyone else. See, Michael thought that since Dave was king, he should always present a sober, high, kingly image. After all, that he should over everyone else. He should act dignified. But Paul said, I was rude in speech. He didn't trust in or put confidence in the flesh. Secondly, his unconventional manner of seeing it in his service to them, which rendered no reward to himself. Notice verses 7 through 9, where he says, verse 7 through 9, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted, because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches. That means I took offerings from other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. When I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable no man, for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied, in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. He spent, again, he spent 18 months teaching them the word of God and provided for his own physical needs. He made himself without charge, no doubt to silence the gainsayers that may have said he was seeking a reward. You know, this kind of leadership was formed in the Roman world. You know, those in leadership in the Roman world were waited on, were served, had servants. Here's Paul. He's the apostle. He's supposed to be the leader. And he's serving. And not being served. And you see... This is what his Lord instructed. Matthew 20, verse 25 to 28 says, But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they their great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be greater among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom many. See, to the world, to be in leadership means you are served. But to the Lord, it means to serve. To serve. And so, he was unconventional in his manners. The third thing we see here, his identification of false teachers. Verses 13 through 15. 
says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to the works. So he identifies these teachers that are trying to discredit him and lead them astray as false teachers. And I want to mention several things that he identifies here. First of all, they preach another Jesus. If you notice, back up to verse 4. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. You know, Paul preached that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This, that was the saving moment in his life. You know, in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, you know, he, he sees, he's on his way to Damascus and he, he sees this bright light and, and he says it's from heaven, shine round about him and he fell to the earth and he asked this question, who art thou Lord? Now, he didn't like Jesus. Just like Jews today, they didn't like Jesus. He was, historians tell us that when somebody in his presence said the name of Jesus, he'd spit in the ground. He thought Jesus was an imposter. But when he saw that light, he knew it was from heaven. He knew it was from God, the God of Israel. So he said, who art thou, Lord? He knew that that light was from the Lord. You know what the answer was? I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. I'm your Lord. I am the Lord. And when he wrote to the church, churches in Rome, he said, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul preached his message was that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And it is through Him alone that salvation is attained. But when you add works like circumcision, baptism, good deeds, self-effort to the gospel, you are negotiating the work of the Lord in atoning for your sin. Then it becomes a negotiation. So how much does the Lord do and how much do I do? You know what Paul says? That is another Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Lord. You're making up a Jesus of your own making. And he says, that is another Jesus. You are equating yourself with the Lord. You are saying, there is saving merit in me as well as in the sinless Son of God. You know, of course, Catholics teach this, that there's saving merit in some of the saints. And of course, if you pay enough, or do enough masses, and pay enough, you might be able to get some of their extra merit applied to your account. They have a name for it. I can't remember what it's called. But you 
when you no longer need to repent or turn from self to God to be saved. If you don't turn away from trusting yourself, you're again trusting another Jesus. Salvation is not a negotiation. It's a gift of God. You know, a good question to ask people is, who is Jesus Christ? Who is He? Is He a good man? Is He a good teacher? Is He a prophet? Or is He the Son of God? See, they preach another Jesus. It makes a big difference what you believe about Jesus Christ. Second thing He says they do is they promote the flesh. Notice verse 18. Seeing that many glory out of the flesh, I will glory also. Now again, as I mentioned, Paul didn't promote that he was learned or that he had a right to physical reward as an apostle. In other words, he had a right to be supported by the brethren. He had that right, though he didn't avail himself of it. He also did not tell them that he was a Hebrew and Israelite and of the seed of Abraham. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, it says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are the seed of Abraham? So am I. Now, we think about why did they go Hebrew, Israelite, seed of Abraham? One thing it has to do with this. The Hebrew, think about the Hebrew people. They were the chosen race. So this is about race here. They had the chosen race that God chose. The Israelites are the nation to whom the promises are given. And Abraham, it's in him shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So how can you lose if you're a Hebrew and an Israelite in the seed of Abraham? Boy, you're somebody special. Paul said, you know what Paul really is saying here? So what? So what? To whom much is given, much is also required. So what? So what if you're a Hebrew? So what if you're an Israelite? So what if you're the seed of Abraham? That isn't going to attain your salvation. Remember what John the Baptist told the Pharisees? God is able to raise up stones unto Abraham. See, this was nothing more than pride in the flesh. It was, as we heard in Sunday school this morning, it was a fixation on a man... It was a focus on man or a person. It's all about what I am or what I have done. You know, I remember years ago talking to a charismatic. And the thing that he said over and over was, how can you say it's not of God when I have done it? He's talking about speaking in tongues. I have done it. And I kept taking the scripture after scripture. finally got into Matthew 7. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Done many wonderful works, cast out devils, done many wonderful works, and I will say unto thee, depart from me, for I never knew thee. It's not about who I am. It's not about the size of the man or the power of his voice or the eloquence of his speech or how charming, winsome personality he has or how much fun he is. (laughs) 
You know, some have to, have to let everyone know how many converts they have. Yeah, I remember Lee telling us one time about a pastor. Every time he baptized somebody, he, he, would, he would ask the church secretary, and how many does that make? Who cares? So get my name in the sort of Lord or something? Who cares? One commentator said this, quote, The emphasis on image and outward appearance is often coupled with an authoritarian approach to leadership. And this probably explains the bondage Paul refers to here. Because if you notice, he also says, for you suffer, verse 20, for if you suffer, if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour of you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. You know, some years ago, there was this thing going around about being 100% for Jack House. There's two things I see wrong with that. Number one, I think it demonstrates pride and insecurity of a part of a preacher that asks such a question. Number two, we're supposed to be crucified with Christ. I'm not even 100% for me. Why would I be 100% somebody else? See, this is a promotion of the flesh. The third thing that they do, these false teachers do, is they use people. Verse 20. For if you suffer, if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face... Now, when he says bring you into bondage, that's, that's, the idea is enslave you. He devour means to strip of one's goods. To take of you means to circumvent by fraud. In other words, they have, and, and the idea there is a deceitful strategy. In other words, they have a strategy or, or, or a, some evil intention to keep you coming and to keep you giving. You know, all you have to do is, 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 is look at the swindlers on TV, preachers, and they make all these grand and glorious promises. If you just, you know, do this or lay your hand on the television and, and pray these words or you, 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 you send some money and you get this handkerchief, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Circumventing by fraud. Or they may browbeat you with guilt by misuse of the word of God. It's highly deceptive. You know, many times, many people think because a preacher may be very intense and animated, that means he is serious in his walk with the Lord and living right and a true man of God. You know, that was said about David Howes while he was committing adultery and abusing wives. They said he was a very animated and intense preacher. You know, how are we commanded to give the word of God? The Bible says that we are to feed the flock of God. Now, my impression is there that 
is, is not the idea that I'm, you open your mouth and I'm going to shove it in or force feed you. You know, the psalmist said, He leadeth me to green pastures. But you know, the sheep had to eat it. See, these false teachers, they bring people into bondage. They use people. They use people. I remember a year ago, this is an independent Baptist church, I heard a preacher say, that you have 5% of your congregation that will do all the work. That will really be serious about serving the Lord. And you need to work on those 5%. And basically what he said was, forget about the rest. And I thought to myself, where's the spirit of the Lord here in this? I mean, our Lord tells about the 99 that he left to go find that one sheep that was lost. Another thing we see here is if he exalt himself, he's lifted up with pride. When a man changes the gospel, he has made a God and a gospel of his own choosing which is no longer good news, but in reality is damning news. And he is a fraud. It even says they smite you. You This sounds severe to us, but in those days it appears to have been common. In Acts 23.1, Paul, earnestly beholding the council, he's sitting before the, the council of the Sanhedrin, and said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God on this day. And Ananias, the high priest, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. So in that day, it was not uncommon for somebody, if somebody said something wrong, for somebody in leadership to smite you on the mouth. But the Lord gives qualifications for pastors. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, he says, Not given to wine and no striker. No striker. And not a brawler. Not somebody who's looking for a fight. You know, it's easy enough to get in a fight. We ought not to go looking for them. You pastors aren't to strike. They're to be patient on all men, apt to teach. In meekness, meekness, teaching those who oppose themselves. You know, there's a point here that these false teachers are like modern-day politicians that enact laws that they themselves do not keep. And they consider themselves above the people 
They are the uh, the elitist mentality, which the Lord hates. In fact, Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, and verses 6 and verse 15, I'm sorry, Revelation 2, verse 6, Revelation 2 and verse 6 says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The word Nicolaitans comes from, it's a combination of two words, Nikao and Laetans. Nikao means conquerors. Laetans, what's it sound like? Laity. Or the people. So it's conquerors of the people. And again in verse 15, he says, Thou hast, thou, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Lycanlaetans, which thing I hate. And I believe we have an example of this in the scriptures in 3 John, in verse 9. Apostle John says, I wrote in the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Here was a here was somebody that was practicing Nicolaitism. He thought he was over the people. And he he was a lord over. God's heritage. But a sad reality is, as one commentator said, quote, many people are more comfortable with authoritarian, quote unquote, super apostles than they are with the freedom that is open to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul's method of ministry was not about bringing people to himself, but presenting them to Christ. Espousing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not through fleshly means, but through the power of God. Making Christ manifest and not himself. After all, it's Christ that gives life. We are not to seek to control people but lead them into rest and peace with God. That's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And probably the greatest illustration of this ministry model is John the Baptist. You know, in John chapter 1, you know, John the Baptist comes on the scene preaching repentance. And of course, they were asking him who he was and where he come from and what his purpose was and all these kind of things. And, and John says this in John 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same for, came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. In verse 15, John bear witness of him and cried saying, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Again in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. 
And, and then again in chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, he says this, Ye yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom withstandeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And then he says these words. He must increase. I must decrease. See, John said, it's not about me. It's about him. You know, he preached the gospel. You need to repent. You need to be baptized. Believe in the Savior that is coming. And when the Savior appeared, he said to his disciples, that's the Lamb of God. You go follow him. And Peter and John, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were disciples of John the Baptist. They left John. Why? Because John said, that's the Lamb of God. Don't follow me. You follow him. See, don't follow me. You need to follow him. Paul said, don't follow me. You need to follow him. I'm going to teach you the truth, but you need to follow him. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go somewhere else. But he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Don't follow me. Follow him. Salvation is not in me. It's in him. So we need to present. Present others to Christ. It's not us. It's Him. We're not important. We're just servants. And we need to simply, humbly serve Him. 